Alrighty, Rare Petro Network, welcome back. We've got another episode for you today. And if you are listening to this podcast, be sure to check it out on the YouTube channel. A lot more great visuals, definitely a little bit more entertaining. And if you feel like you're missing part of the conversation, it's probably a visual aspect. So be sure to check that out. But other than that, you know why we're here today. You probably read the title. It is, of course, myself, Tavis Killian, with the pleasure of hosting the oil field tech man, Jeffrey Can. Thank you again for joining us, Jeffrey. Always a pleasure. And of course, as you know, this is not a standalone series. This is really complimentary to the book, Bits, Bites, and Barrels. And really, if you can't figure out why you need this book by the end of the episode, then we have failed. But I think we can make a good case for it. So today, we will be discussing the Internet of Things, or more specifically, the Industrial Internet of Things. Jeffrey, can you explain that latter term and maybe how it differs from the former? Oh, sure. So the uh, Internet of Things is a term that the vendors typically of sensor technology have coined to describe the uh, different kinds of uh, digital recording devices that are available for a wide variety of consumer uses. Many of us will be very, very familiar with them. As an example, my, 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 my smartwatch on my wrist, uh, a Garmin, um, a, a Fitbit would be another example. It's a sensor. It uh, has the ability to capture and record uh, some kind of data. In the case of a Fitbit, it might be you know walking or running or what have you, your heart rate. Um, uh, other sensors are much more sophisticated. Uh, so imagine you take that concept and you pull that into in a more industrial setting, and suddenly the, the demands on that sensor go up. Uh, it may need to operate in a much wider range of uh, environmental conditions. It may need to uh, be much more uh, secure. It may need to be able to uh, handle um, odd power uh, situations. So in my, in my case, I might take my watch off every night and put that on a charger so that it recharges for the next day. But that, that recharging a, a sensor in a remote oil field may, may not be practical on a daily basis. So industrial internet, of, internet sensors, industrial internet of things, uh, these sensor technologies uh, have these different, different features and characteristics. Beyond that, you'll often find these industrial Internet of Things uh, uh, creations with multiple sensors so that a, a specific industrial piece of equipment finds itself with lots and lots of sensors uh, attached to it. Uh, as an example, the gas wells in Queensland, which is uh, where Australia's natural gas production flows into their LNG infrastructure, uh, each of the gas wells has 10, <clears throat> 10 to 15 different sensors on it to record things like temperature, pressure, uh, current heat, uh, the uh, local weather conditions, on and on and on, all kinds of possible data that are captured uh, from, uh, from those different sensors. All right. And then what are the advantages of having such a widespread network of sensors and software, or can it get to the point where it's maybe too convoluted and becomes disadvantageous? Well, the, the advantage uh, of the having uh, sensors uh, on in industrial equipment is because it uh, creates a, the ability to monitor the current operating state of that, that bit of infrastructure from a distance, which uh, has uh, tremendous advantages. If you go back to the 1940s, 1950s, uh, factories at that time would have been incredibly noisy, uh, uh, dirty, dangerous, and yet there was no practical way for the uh, workers of the day uh, to supervise that equipment without physically getting very close to it. 
Well, in our world, that's not very appealing. It's hard to attract a workforce uh, to do that. Uh, so these sensors allow us to supervise and run this equipment from a distance. And that has tremendous advantages because it it's a lowers cost, improves their reliability, allows us to keep a much closer eye on their performance. You can manage their performance within a, a much tighter envelope of or, or acceptable set points or ranges within which the, the, that piece of equipment is, is expected to run. Okay, what are some of the most common uses then within oil and gas? Because initially, personally, my mind is drawn straight to E&P, but I imagine it probably applies to all sectors. Yeah, sensor, I mean, when you think about oil and gas as an industry, the, the product, uh, hydrocarbons, are, are very, very dangerous. They're flammable, <laughs> explosive, they're asphyxiant, they're poisonous. Humans, we don't, want to eat, we don't want to even get close to this product, physically close to it. And so, therefore, we run this industry largely on information we have about what's actually going on uh, with, with the product as it flows its way through uh, the processing infrastructure. And uh, so the sensor technology is already widely deployed. I mean, the oil and gas industry would have been one of the very first industries to use and, and put into place uh, sensor technology to supervise and monitor its, uh, its, its operations. And probably only second to the electricity industry, I would think, if you went back into the, into the 1950s or so. But uh, today, uh, sensor technology is, is very widely used across this industry in all, all manner of places because of this, this, the, the need to keep a human separation from the actual product. And you kind of mentioned it. There's that advantage of human separation. But outside of oil and gas, it sounds like, was it really only the electric sector that was making use of this technology before? And what was that? Just advanced metering, remote meter reading? Uh, no, it's well beyond, um, well beyond uh, the power industry. The uh, manufacturing industry was another early adopter of this kind of technology. And of course, now if you, you totally watch some YouTube videos of what goes on inside a car factory. Uh, it, it's there. You 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 almost assume there are no people involved in the manufacturing of cars because it all appears to be robots. Well, those robots are operating with and and have lots and lots of sensors on them to be able to detect uh, and and monitor their their precise movements uh, as a as a as a consequence. So no, oil and gas is not the only industry, and it's not. While it was a very very early industry in adopting the technology, uh, it is uh, by no means the only industry that that embraces. Industrial Internet of Things technologies. And are there any other pairings of technologies we may have previously discussed that pair well with this? Because right now, in an optimistic way, I'm sure it's not as easy as I think, but AI, I think that holds a truly powerful potential pairing, or am I mistaken? No, you would be quite correct. The volume of data that these sensors generate is, is enormous, and it, uh, it requires a couple of technologies, actually, to make sense of them. One is the ability to actually store all of that data that comes off the sensor so that you can process it. The, the modern innovation for this is to use cloud computing technologies as a, as a place to store that data. But it does take new industrial grade tools to be able to process all the data and make sense of it. And that's one of the key roles of artificial intelligence uh, that, uh, and machine learning and, and other technologies within that broad range of technologies that are consumers of data and interpreters of that data. Mm -hmm. And then Clearly, the super majors have been using this for quite a while. They're always the first. But when you get to mid-small-tier companies, how are they picking up this technology? I mean, what gets juiced up first sensor-wise? What becomes smart right out of the gates? 
Well, the first thing that's uh, smarter right out of the gate is the actual workforce because they're, they're all wandering around with supercomputers in their pockets. I mean, the, the sensor in a, in a, in a smartphone, uh, sensors in a smartphone is extraordinary. It gives you precise mapping location. Uh, it gives you a, uh, it's a accelerometer. You can tell how fast it's moving. Uh, you can tell whether it's, uh, the, the phone is vertical or horizontal, or if it's uh, a landscape or portrait. I mean, the, the capabilities within a phone itself are, are amazing. Uh, my uh, my watch now you know the the I can tell me um, with tremendous accuracy the 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 noise level by decibel and decibel ratings of, of the environment that I'm in, and so the these these technologies are you know they're 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 very much widespread, uh, and um, and they're the the beauty of them is because of their cost keeps coming down the more you the more you build them the cheaper they get uh, which is a function of Moore's law, and they're now well within range of. All companies throughout the value chain in oil and gas, not just the super majors. Uh, and in fact, the suppliers of kit into the industry uh, are highly motivated to add these sensors into their gear because it makes their gear distinctive and, and special and, and, and again enables that separation of, of human from, from the, uh, the actual coal face of the work. And so the, the mid-market, there's plenty of scope for mid-market companies to embrace this technology too. And I'm glad you brought up the point of the cell phone because, I mean, like you said, it's a supercomputer. We have all of these sensors between accelerometers, internet connectivity. There's so much. And even Rare Petro, we took advantage of that to make an app called Truck Track, where it does allow operators to view driver's locations real time. Think of kind of like a service field Uber. So in the service field specifically, how else might they benefit from this technology? Well, aside from the, uh, if you think about uh, the the range of services that go on at a, in in the upstream, that there's you know probably you can count two hundred odd services. So to to say that there is the one thing that is going to make all the difference probably is is a, a, a gross simplification. Each service will have its own unique way of execution, which will allow it to be differentiated in what I call a signature way of working by combining some, uh, some set of technologies, typically uh, a, a kind of data that's very, very valuable for that service, uh, a sensor set or an industrial internet of things that collects that data, some kind of processing engine to interpret in, uh, that data, and then eventually some kind of robotic tool to execute the, the actual work based on the, based on the data. And so the, the, uh, the, the, uh, possibilities here, uh, uh, quite frankly, um, uh, are uh, not limited by uh, any one way of thinking about the world. There's just almost an unlimited number of, of permutations and combinations you can think of to, for, the, for the sensors. But if, if I had to advise, you know, where, where would you start? Like a fast and simple way to start is probably gauges on tanks. There's lots and lots of tanks throughout oil and gas, including on trucks, uh, in yards, on customer premises, and, and these many of these tanks <clears throat> could benefit by having much more real-time uh, information about uh, tank contents, um, volumes, and, and, and the like. And then tanks, that's obviously something that comes to mind really quick, but you also mentioned something else, torque wrenches. That came up in a conversation once. How can we put this technology in the hands of the people using tools? Well, and, and in fact, the tool vendors, as I mentioned, there's a, uh, well, this is a quote from Cisco in, 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 their, in one of their publications, um, anything that can be digitized will be digitized. 
And the reason for that is the cost of digitization is, is, is collapsing, it's going down and down and down. So what, what sorts of things are in the industrial world that are not digital today? And one of those is wrenches, wrenches and pressure gauges you know, used for building things. And, um, but the tool vendors who manufacture those wrenches uh, are now adding sensor technology to the wrenches. As that way, the wrenches are in a position to be able to, uh, as an employee picks up the wrench, uh, they, and they start to use the wrench. The sensor catches the data about where the wrench is at physically, how the employee is holding it, where the uh, wrench is being applied and, and used. And uh, that information, that da data, is being uh, captured, put up into the cloud, where it's then being uh, used by the, the, the uh, uh, t t crew that is supervising that work to know precisely what work was done, by who, holding what tool, and how well was that job executed. I mean, when you start to think about it, right down to the tool level, there's no, there's no reason um, why we cannot be thinking about uh, digitization at, at that level. Yeah, for sure. And then I'd also like to specifically address production. So what ways can the industrial Internet of Things assist production operations through data collection? I mean, sorting through geology data, coordinating services, collecting and managing all of that data. How can that benefit production? Well, there's lots of uh, uh, little examples. Um, there's, and as I say, there is no one silver bullet that really drives this. It it's really does depend on where you're at and, and what the services are that you you supply. But here's here's an interesting example from a, a company that I'm aware of. Uh, they use um, a sensor technology. In this case, happens to be high definition photographs, but they use a an HD uh, camera. Uh, which is just a kind of sensor, just a visual sensor, uh, to take um, a highly a detailed photographs of drilling cuttings as they're coming up off the um, uh, off the uh, uh, on the drilling uh, table at, at drill site. The camera takes the takes a photograph. the The photograph itself is sent to the cloud. An artificial intelligence engine takes that uh, imagery and pastes it together with other images coming up for, uh, that it's taken of, of drilling cuttings. And the AI engine then builds this composite view of the geology underground at a level of granularity that's a million times more than what we would get from normal traditional um, sensors, uh, technology like seismic uh, data readings and the like. So you have to think about that, a million times more data. It's an extraordinary step up. And that's just on drilling cuttings. What about adding the uh, sensor technologies in behind the drill bits to, to provide better guidance? Uh, how would that help in, in, um, in, in drilling operations? Uh, in, in true like ongoing production, uh, how about uh, sensors that can uh, supervise the exact um, uh, stroke of your beam pump at your site to, to be able to detect even the tiniest variations in uh, uh, beam pump performance? to be able to identify when, you know, there's a, a failure about to happen. Um, different kinds of set of sensors. Literally, there's no limitation that it's, it's it, we, we barely scratch the surface on what the art of the possible is in, in yeah, terms of using right. sensor technology. Definitely seems like as long as you're creative enough to come up with an idea that you can pretty much do it, assuming that all the infrastructure is there, is there anything, any preliminary items or systems that need to exist for an internet of things, an industrial internet of things to be successfully implemented? Well, there are two uh, critical things that, that all sensor technology needs. It, they need power 
and uh, they need a telecommunications network. There's no point in collecting the data unless you can get it to, to, to where it can be consumed. I and mean, typically that would be either a cloud or some sort of data historian. So you have to have those two things uh, in place. And uh, those are the two, uh, in oil and gas, it's one of the, one of the quirks of nature. Uh, oil and gas is never found where you have lots of power and great telecommunications. <laughs> that it's would always make too somewhere else. Be way yeah, too easy. exactly. The deep underwater, it's in the high Arctic, or it's uh, some remote, you know, on a barren place. And that's just the way it is. So uh, those are the two critical infrastructure elements that, that, that uh, need to be considered. Now, there's many ways to deal with that. Um, but uh, the, for the most part, the, um, the adoption of it in the, in these newer sensor technologies is predicated on those two uh, factors being that. And then in developing a project, it seems simple enough that I could easily implement that. But that's a greenfield situation in which I can do it right from the start and I might have experience. What about if I'm transitioning into this and I've got a brownfield that has some life of production left? It's probably not going to be that easy, right? Yeah, but brownfield assets um, are harder to change because you have to go through a management of change process. Um, and 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 by by no means uh, to to minimize the uh, the need for um, to to execute the process because um, after all we want that infrastructure to be kept safe and reliable and stable and and all of those things uh, really tie into a, uh, a a carefully thought through way of of implementing change. But uh, you know um, the the uh, many companies unfortunately use the management of change process as a reason not to do something. And at some point we have to get over that because uh, the, the, the um, management of change process should never be used as a, as a crutch, a reason to not execute. It, it uh, should be there to, to execute, but to keep us safe as we do so. Uh, and so uh, it is a, uh, and in fact, I was on doing an interview with um, uh, uh, a CEO of a, of a, a venture fund. And um, he said, you know, we have to get over that. It's, 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 that's an, it's just a tired excuse, which has no further place in this industry. That'll definitely aid in the transition if we can get rid of that mentality. But for the automation side of things, how can Internet of, an industrial Internet of Things sensor technology assist in reducing those manual and costly tasks. I'm thinking specifically an example of leasing equipment and then splitting the cost accordingly among one site if the working interest might change to another site. Well, a good example of, of how that could work or one possible solution is that those leased assets themselves <clears throat> have some sort of uh, indicator or uh, a broadcaster technology attached to them, which uh, uh, could be read by, say, a field supervisor as you kind of pass by those assets to allow you to identify precisely what assets are part of that SCID package and allow you to, the supervisor to quickly move them from one uh, drilling um, operation or one production site to the next. Uh, and as, as long as that data today, that kind of data is going to be captured on a, a spreadsheet or a clipboard form and then it has to be uh, shipped to an office somewhere where someone has to take that data and put it into finance. We all understand in the pandemic world how hard that process now is because the, you know people are not in the office to be able to receive the paperwork. So the, the way the Internet of Things solves that problem is it uh, that precisely captures the data at the source in a, in, through 
the transmission of that data directly into back office systems. Eliminates all of that delay and cost and, and, and uh, that comes along with that, that paper manual uh, transaction. So it creates a, a potential for significant time and money savings. Clearly. And then uh, moving on, we've talked about implementation from a logistics perspective. You know, you've got your network, your power. But what about the way that you think? I'm sure more has to change than just those two concrete things. And I think cybersecurity would probably be a huge issue when implementing networks with this much information, potentially information you don't want people seeing. Yeah, cyber is as again as it, it's a, a critical piece of the puzzle here. It, it's it it says now needs to be elevated in in our industrial setting to to be on par with uh, what we would call health and safety. We now need to be thinking about cyber as as one of the, at that same level. Uh, and um, the the cyber worries are not going to go away anytime soon. The cyber criminals have access to all the same technology as the industrialists have except they're putting those same te technologies, artificial intelligence as one example, to work to try and, uh, and, and uh, fuel their criminal enterprise. And so cyber activities and cyber is, not, is, is absolutely not going to go away and organizations are going to have to invest time and energy to understand exactly what their cyber exposures are. Uh, as you add more digital technology into your, into your, your business, you create an ever larger surface for, for criminals to try to attack. And that's a, that is a key problem that the industry will have to wrestle with. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, as you add more things, you increase your vulnerability. But I'm thinking about my computer, things that could happen to me. Ransomware, DDoSing, can that happen to this Internet of Things, an industrial setting even? Uh, absolutely. There's no. Uh, there's absolutely no reason why it. Uh, why it. Uh, it cannot. And and in fact, if you read the uh, literature, you'll find examples where uh, in, in Internet of Things uh, devices are, are being used by criminals for all kinds of uh, 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 all kinds of uh, uh, activities that uh, would would be. It's, uh, unheard of just even a few years ago. Uh, in my book, I wrote about the uh, situation in Las Vegas where uh, a casino had uh, put in a beautiful oceanic aquarium chock full of uh, you know, rare fish and sea anemones, you know, the kind of thing you'd find in a beautiful hotel lobby. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, instead of uh, feeding the uh, fish um, manually every day, they put a little um, uh, automated uh, feeder at the top of the tank, and uh, it was connected to the internet so that the uh, maintenance company who was maintaining the aquarium could keep an eye on salinity levels, uh, carbon dioxide levels, light, uh, other pollutants in the water, may basically maintain a pure and beautiful aquarium. Well, some hackers broke into that, into this, the, the fish feeder and uh, turned it into a listening post where they began stripping off uh, casino data. This kind of was meant to be inside the, inside the firewall, inside, mm -hmm. the, inside the casino. Uh, so um, it gives a whole new meaning to the word phishing attack. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this is real, real phishing. Uh, so can, can it be, can, can uh, cyber uh, criminal um, uh, efforts uh, attack even what appears to be a very mundane uh, part of, of, uh, of our infrastructure? Absolutely. And, uh, and so the, again, the, the, the message is still very clear. Bigger attack surface creates more vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And then as we move forward and we develop in not only a, an internet of things, but a safe internet of things that is well secured, 
what if we're looking to develop other technologies as well? Because I'm thinking AI, Internet of Things, those are things that a lot more companies, if they're not already taking advantage of, will soon yeah. begin take advantage taking advantage of those two things. Do you implement one implement one before the other or at the same time? How does that work? Well, the the, uh, the there isn't a clear answer to that. Um, many oil and gas companies are already sit on lots and lots of data, and so adding mm -hmm. sensor new sensor technology to generate more data might not be the you know will we'll add to their data pile. Yeah. So what I typically see is oil and gas companies starting with the application of um, uh, artificial intelligence tools to just take a look at the data that they already have. Where there is a repair or a maintenance task to be done on a piece of equipment, uh, that creates the window to add new Internet of Things uh, technology that, that in turn generates that, that extra data, that more data. Hmm. And uh, so it's, they, they, they tend to happen in, in if you like, in, in parallel. Once, once you start adding new sensors, you, you're, you generate all this data. What are you going to do with it? Uh, if the data from a sensor is just telling you, oh, um, the machine is running, or it's not uh, the machine is running, um, and, uh, but it's at 50% of its capacity, that's an interesting piece of data, but it doesn't give you enough to allow you to be able to predict its performance in the future, for instance. Um, and so uh, the companies can add the sensor technology on, those, on those, that equipment, and they'll get, a, they'll get a quick benefit. But it won't be the, the big benefit that they could get until they add the, the artificial intelligence and machine learning tools to do the interpretation of the data. Hmm. And then this, what I see is companies um, experimenting with AI over here so they can figure out how that works and take advantage of their data pile and um, so slowly deploying Internet of Things once they have a place to kind of put that data and, and take advantage of it once they, once they collect it. So at this point, there's still a little bit of human oversight that's needed to contextualize all the data and information that comes in until we can get AI to a point that it can do it on its own. Typically, yes, that's, that's precisely how it works. There's still a fair amount of human manipulation and massaging of data that has to take place. Mm -hmm. And then what about the change in management that's necessary? Because like we said, cybersecurity, the way things operate, this all needs to change. I know I certainly don't have the expertise that would be required from any level, but how much training is necessary to get those uh, more hands-on parts of the company experienced and develop the way that they can work with this technology? Is it expensive to get these people trained up? Yeah, it's a real debate, you know. Uh, will, uh, will Do all of your employees need to really understand the nuances of machine learning and artificial intelligence? Um, probably not. Uh, will they need to understand the role and the potential of these sensor technologies at, at the field site? A absolutely. And uh, because under any, under any um, the scenario you can think of until we reach uh, you know full uh, robotic uh, management of, of field assets uh, the reality is people are going to still take the lead role to install the sensors uh, periodically check on them to make sure that they're still calibrated and working correctly uh, dealing with uh, any mishaps at a site uh, you know fly, fire a flood or a storm that knocks out sensors people are going to have to go to the site to deal with them so the employees at that sort of frontline level are going to have to see how this technology works. And uh, so if, if, if it were my money, I would be investing in elevating the capacity and capability of my uh, team at the, at the front of the business where the sensors are actually active uh, so that they are comfortable working with them, they understand their role, they are able to install and maintain them, 
uh, that would be a big step up uh, for, for a company. The, the, these more sophisticated data interpretation tools um, um, are at the moment, because they're still finicky and, and uh, require a high level of, of um, industrial know-how to use, are still uh, best left in the hands of a smaller number in, in head office until such time as they become easier to use and more democratic. Yeah, so it sounds like either way you tackle it, there's going to be associated hidden costs with this technology. And I remember you talking about an example where you had maybe a dumb pump at $20,000 and then a smart sensor pump at 30. And so the difference there is not too much, but then when you start adding up the training costs, the implementation, the upkeep, does that really offset it quite a bit? Does that scare management away? Uh, it certainly will uh, be a, uh, an alarming uh, development if you're um, at that, at that, uh, in that setting. The example I, I, um, uh, I refer to uh, is, uh, is it was a company that had the option to uh, replace a pump like for like or to put the new digital version in. Uh, but the management of change process caused the, the, the price to skyrocket because when you put in something new that's digital, the, the work procedures for the workers who are maintaining that equipment have to change because the, the old pump didn't have an electrical feed. Now it does. Uh, the old pump didn't have those sensors. Now it does. How do, you, how do you know and what's the training you need to give the workforce so that they can identify when, say, one of the sensors on that pump is, is malfunctioning, not the whole pump? The whole uh, the procedure to bring the plant down safely and then start it up again safely needs to be rethought because you have a, a different asset in place. All of this stuff takes time and energy to test, to debug, to make sure it works, to update the training manuals, train the workforce on it. That management change process drives the, 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 the cost. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it does serve as a barrier for many managers. They start thinking about, well, the, what's the art of the possible? But then when you get hit with this very, very high cost curve, uh, it becomes quite daunting to see how you'll, how you'll do it. And then, so we've explained pretty thoroughly how technical people, uh, hands-on people working with this equipment will need to be chained, chain will need to be trained and what changes need to be made. <laughs> And then also change. moving up, we talked about management and how they can't use their poor excuses to refuse change. What else does management have to do? And maybe a little bit further up the ladder, C-level people. What changes do they need to work towards? Well, I, I still have a great deal of sympathy for people working in, in oil and gas and managing these businesses. They're, they're complex. Uh, they are under intense public scrutiny. The regulatory burden is high. And, and at the moment, the prices being recovered are, are low. And, uh, the, the, uh, uh, and the volatility in the world because of the pandemic is creating tremendous uncertainty. So I feel for, for managers in this industry is the kind of challenges they have to, to, to deal with. At the same time, though, uh, I would also say that these digital tools, Internet of Things, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, better quality data, automation and robotics, these tools offer managers and management ways to think about these businesses in very, very different ways. And if you really want to change the cost curve of oil and gas, it's not so, it used to be you just change suppliers and get a 5% price reduction. Those days are over. We need to change the cost curve for oil and gas quite dramatically. And we also need to change its emissions footprint dramatically. The, the only real plausible tools out there that show us pathways to do that are our digital tools. And so for managers, the, the key task for them is to get smart on what these technologies can actually do and what their, what their offer is. 
uh, so that we move away from uh, business as usual, same old, same old, and uh, move into reimagining and reinventing this industry for the future. All right. And I think that touches on everything we wanted to talk about for this episode. So that might be the end, everybody. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel so that you have an idea of not only what we're talking, but what we're doing with this. Plenty of good illustrations, good lists to really highlight the important parts of this podcast. But again, it doesn't stand on its own. You're going to need this book. I cannot, if you don't have a copy yet, buy a copy of this book. It's $10. You can go to amazon.com, other digital retailers for a physical copy. Go to audible.com, listen to it. Or if you're really trying to move forward and stay with the futuristic theme, get yourself a copy for your Kindle and stay in the know. I mean, I can't think of any reason that they shouldn't have this book already. Can you, Jeffrey? Um, unless you don't read English, that's probably the only <laughs> real compelling reason. And uh, the book is going to be uh, translated into foreign languages shortly. There's, uh, I have a contract in hand already for a Russian version. Uh, so the, the book is going to, uh, it's going to go global. Perfect. So there you go. The one excuse that you may have had, no longer. So thank you again, Jeffrey, for joining us this episode. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody.